Daryl McLeod. Um, he's a Canadian Cree author from Treaty 8 territory in northern Alberta. His book is Mamaskatch, a Cree coming of age, an account of his childhood struggles with physical and sexual abuse, won the 2018 Governor General's Award, a Canadian literary award that annually recognizes one Canadian writer for a nonfiction book written in English. To his left, Julie Jansen is an Australian indigenous woman of the Buruburungal clan of Daruk Nation. She's a teacher, artist, playwright, author and poet, and senior researcher at the University of Sydney. She's written 10 plays, three, uh, three published books, The Crocodile Hotel, The Light Horse Ghost, Benevolence, and she's working on a new book called Wilga. Uh, at the end is Long Lit Woon. She's a Malaysian-born author uh, who has lived the, 40 odd, uh, the last 40 odd years in Norway and recently published uh, a book called The Way Through the Woods and she's here for uh, the Malaysian launch of it. So, um, yeah, so we're gonna uh, get into this um, this first with this idea of ecological pessimism. And since we have representation from all the far corners of the earth, we have, you know, Europe, Canada, um, Australia, I'd like to ask each of them, um, what are their thoughts on, e on this idea of ecological pessimism? Let's start with you, Woon. Hello. Oh, this works. <laughs> well. Greta T comes from next door, from me. So, um, it's interesting that she's so young because uh, I see that in Norway too, definitely, that the young people echo many of their thoughts that Greta T has managed to articulate so succinctly and so, um, you know, with, with a way of going forward too. So, um, yeah, there is a lot of pessimism, but I think it would be great if we also could focus a bit on the good stuff that is happening. We will. We'll cycle through to that. Yep. Julie? Um, it's very easy to be pessimistic. Uh, if you live in Australia and you turn on the television in the morning and you find that the state is ringed with bushfires and you know that the many rivers have dried up completely because they've been over-irrigated. It's very easy to kind of think, oh, well, this is the end of the world. Uh, in Sydney only two days ago, it was 40 degrees and the air quality was the worst in the world due to the bushfires and the dust storms. And um, you know, sometimes you, you just kind of think you, you just want to give up, go put your head in the sand, go to a nice retirement village somewhere or something where someone will feed you with a spoon and you won't have to think about it. But in fact, it's the young people like Greta who has uh, galvanised the entire world, really, not just young people. And first of all, in Sydney, when it was announced there was a school climate uh, strike, I went along because children had been saying on the internet, please, if you're an adult, come along and protect us. Protect us from the police. Protect us from who we need to be protected from. So I got on the train, I went into town, and there were all these mothers with little tiny children, some of them only five or six years of age, with their homemade signs all going to this march. And there were about 500 people there, most of them little children with their mothers. And I thought, this is some kind of 
social phenomena I had never seen before. And then within a month, there was another march, and there were 100,000 people from Sydney at the demonstration and the march, all started by children. So that fills me with huge optimism for the planet. Um, Daryl, um, do comment on this, but I also want you to uh, read your poem that you've brought today, uh, which is, um, I, I think there's, uh, we should also not discount that not, that not everybody is pessimistic. Some of us have, are already uh, moving on, doing the right thing, uh, and uh, I think your, your poem reflects that really well. Well, thank you. Daryl Isiga, so um, just a few words in my language from uh, northern Alberta. My language is Cree or Nehiao. Um, there are plenty of things to make uh, Greta angry and make any thinking and caring person angry, uh, probably in any part of the world. And, um, you know, where I live, for example, I live in a pristine area still on the west coast of Vancouver Island in Canada. And we still have some old growth forest, and we still have an ocean that's pretty clean. We have a water system, an ecosystem that's in pretty good shape. But yet, every day, dozens of logging trucks whip past my house, uh, logging as quickly as they can before the current provincial government imposes a ban on raw, lo raw log exports, the exports of raw logs uh, out of the country without any uh, economic benefits, really, to, to Canada. And um, I think it's the unthinking things like this that make, should make, make people angry. We know better. In so many instances, we know better. Uh, we know the impacts now of uh, clear-cut logging, for example. We know the impact of uh, pit mining and reckless mining. Um, but yet, we go ahead. And it seems that um, at all costs, uh, Western countries want to ramp up the GDP at, at all and any cost, and that's the priority. And I was fortunate to, enough to be in a, a small city in Canada, Whitehorse, it's in the, the Yukon, a northern territory of Canada, uh, the day of protest for sort of the national or international day of protest for the environment. And uh, so it was wonderful. In, in that small city, there must have been like 10,000 people, that's almost the entire population, <laughs> out in the, in the street. And it was beautiful to see children, parents, grandparents, elders, people of all different racial backgrounds and uh, protesting. But what was sad to me was there seemed to be a sense of defeat. Even though there was incredible energy, there seemed to be this prevailing sense of, well, what can we all do about it? What can we do about it? And so that was, that was concerning. And, you know, it depends on people are still uh, letting their impressions and their opinions about climate change be influenced by economics, perhaps a bit too much. I did a bit of research to prepare for this in uh, terms of the thinking uh, from some institutions in Canada. So we have a large research body called the Conference Board of Canada that does research and uh, writes policy papers and that kind of thing to try to influence government and corporations. And uh, then we have an, uh, a right-wing think tank called the Fraser Institute. So the Ca Conference Board of Canada um, cited examples that we could, should be concerned about in terms of air quality, water quality, uh, the, types of, the specific types of pollution we have in Canada that we should co be concerned about. 
and they rated Canada, a lot, uh, based on other international research, rated Canada's um, performance in terms of environmental protection. And they're concerned. Canada, in many areas, for example, if you're doing an A, B, C, D kind of grading where A is excellent and D is bad, Canada got a C. But uh, the Fraser Institute, which is a more business-oriented, uh, right-wing political think tank, uh, basically they're, they're saying, well, as long as what's happening isn't causing any harm to Canadians, then there's no reason to be concerned. And that's a very simplistic summary, but I went through their, the different areas of their report, and that was their, basically their conclusion. As long as the majority of Canadians have clean drinking water, then we shouldn't be concerned about the pollution caused by the Athabasca tar sands, and so on, that kind of thing. Uh, as long as our daily lives aren't being impacted, we shouldn't be worried. And that's completely the wrong attitude, which would infuriate Greta, and, and, uh, and should infuriate any thinking person. So uh, I'll, I'll talk later about what I think is a, some examples of cooperation that have worked in, in uh, specific cases in Canada that I'm aware of and have been involved with. And, but if you want me to read my poem right now, and uh, there's a bit of a surprise opening. Does everybody here know Janis Joplin? Okay, you'll see why now. <laughs> oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? My friends all drive Porsches. So that isn't part of the poem, <laughs> but uh, it's important to set the stage. My mom used to sing that as a little kitchen protest uh, in our little humble uh, shack that we lived in behind a pool hall in a small town in northern Alberta. And I understood that it was her kitchen protest about our poverty, but yet we had enough and we had everything that we needed. And um, before our lifestyle was disrupted, we truly had everything we needed and we lived in harmony with nature. And I'll talk a bit about that later. But here's the poem. So this poem is simply called a poem. I was asked uh, to uh, be a, a panelist at a conference in Montreal, the Blue Metropolis, and I was asked to speak on social inequality, and they gave us each four minutes. And I was stumped. I didn't know what on earth I was going to say about social inequality in four minutes. So it came to me three days before uh, that I should just write a poem and pretend I'm a slam poet. So here we go. A poem. I don't need a Porsche, Mercedes, or Lamborghini. A Chevrolet or a dog sled will do. I can even travel on foot sometimes. I don't need souffles, fondues, or portobellos, although I can enjoy it all and deserve to. I don't need equality or even want it. I just want the freedom, ability, and wherewithal to enjoy what is rightfully mine, my territory and all it brings to me, Mother Earth, traditional foods, knowledge, love, and healing. Don't get me wrong, please. I'm as hedonistic as the next person. I love luxury, abundance, possessing treasures. Just don't let your good fortune come at the expense of mine. There's enough for all of us. I don't need to hoard money or wealth more than I could ever count or spend in my lifetime. Paper, Bitcoin, precious metals I can't eat or even take solace from. Give me back my honor, my dignity, and peace of mind. Then we'll be equal. When I can look you in the eye and make you be the first to lower your gaze. I don't need equality or even want it. I just want the freedom, ability, and wherewithal to enjoy what is rightfully mine, 
my territory, and all it brings to me. Mother Earth, traditional foods, knowledge, love, and healing. Thank you, Daryl. So there's a very sensible uh, sentiment to uh, what Daryl was saying, but you know, I think the, the idea of anger is valid. Uh, it does spur, it does uh, get people uh, thinking and doing things. And, um, and Julie, in, I, I've read in interviews that anger is actually one of your motivators for writing. Uh, and uh, so do tell us about that. And I think you, uh, you're going to read something from your, the work that you're, you're working on right now uh, called Wilger. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Um... Uh, Chris said, oh, would you like to read something from your, your new novel that's not published yet? And that's always a bit kind of daring, really, because you think, oh, dear, it hasn't even been edited. It might be terrible. But anyway, he did ask me. So I'll just put it in a bit of a context. Uh, the, the other novels I've written mostly have been uh, historical to a certain degree. And uh, I went to start a new novel, and I thought, um, I want to write about something that's quite contemporary, that, uh, that makes me angry, makes Greta T. angry. I, I'm going to write something about the environment. And uh, I decided to write uh, a novel about a river, a river that in Australia for 600 kilometers is, is dead now. There is no water in it. It no longer flows. It used to flow from Queensland in the north all the way to South Australia, thousands of kilometers of a, a deep flowing river, the Darling River. And it's now for 600 kilometers, it is completely dry. And uh, I had a very close association with this river, the Darling River, because when I was very young, in my early 20s, I went to live in a town along the river with an Aboriginal community, uh, the Murray people, the Nyempa people of Burke in New South Wales, and uh, developed very close relationships. And um, so to watch this river die was really confronting and to realize that it, it ended up with a, a movement of um, ecological awareness and activism by Aboriginal people along the river, which hadn't been there before. And uh, recently I was privileged to go to some ceremonies along the river, Aboriginal ceremonies that had not been performed in the river in, in maybe 50 years. And uh, there were 30 people, men and women, dressed up in ceremonial feathers and ochre, doing the corroboree on the river. To, to bring back the spirit of the river, to try to draw attention to the fact that the river was gone. So I'll just explain a little bit about uh, spiritual attachment by indigenous people to things like rivers. The rivers in Australia are said to have been made by the rainbow serpents. So it's not a Christian thought. It's not a thought about one god. It's about a serpent that is a rainbow that actually traversed the earth and tore up the earth and turned it into a river. So I'll just read a little extract from my unpublished novel, which in it mentions the rainbow serpent who made the river. And my uh, protagonist is a, a lady called Auntie June, because my other novels, my protagonists were often young women, and I thought it's about time to celebrate older women, women closer to my own age, and all the aunts and people that I've grown up with, who Aboriginal people who um, I admire. And so I've created a very feisty, a uh, character called Auntie June. June. Auntie June was a brown-skinned figure in a landscape of devastated trees. Her sleep in the dark bedroom returned her to the Darling River. Deep green water, luscious and cool, where yellow-belly fish hid in Nyempa country, the Nurunkapa, 
called out. She rolled over on her side. Maduka, the great rainbow serpent's eye, glinted from the river with a jet black sky of stars where the Milky Way wiggled like a black ribbon overhead in the serpent's path. His pearl tongue flickered around Orion's belt. So it's the beginning of the novel, Wilga. Uh, and Auntie June is a character who returns to the river with her family to have a meeting about the death of the river and how they can rise up to fight all the international consortium of irrigators who've taken the river away. It's happening right now, so it's, it's quite strange to write a novel that unfolds every day in the news and amongst the Aboriginal activists that I know, and perhaps a little daring. I might say in the end of my novel, I bring the river back to life. <laughs> Optimism. Thanks, Shirley. Um, one of the things that uh, Greta T is angry about actually is the inertia. That's her main complaint that nothing's being done. You know, so um, so I'm quite interested because uh, I've been uh, speaking with Woon and her novel deals with grief, and grief can you know is there a sense of grief about what's going on because you know and that's what uh, contributes to this incredible inertia about the subject. Um. I think so, Chris, but just let me backtrack a bit because I was invited to the, the festival uh, because of my book uh, called The Way Through the Woods of Mushrooms and Mourning. So when I was told that I was invited to this panel, I was not entirely sure what, um, yeah, what the organizers were thinking about because my book is about, you know, my husband died and then I wrote this book, and the book has got two uh, journeys, an outer journey, an inner journey. The outer journey, when I go and out and uh, discover this wonderful kingdom of fungi, and not only the mushrooms, but also the mushroom people. I'm an anthropologist. And then the inner journey, which is this landscape of grief, and how these two uh, stories are interconnected. So I was sitting and wondering, uh, you know, why did they invite me to be on this panel? Yes, I do write a bit about climate change and mushrooms, you know, uh, how there are some mushrooms that we do not have in Norway today which we expect to appear as the climate grows, uh, gets warmer. And in fact, uh, just very recently I heard that this particular mushroom, uh, a big fat, red poisonous mushroom from Denmark has already been observed in Norway. So cl climate is changing and, and the mushrooms will tell you so. But anyway, back to this invitation. And um, so I thought, yeah, why is gratitude angry? I think there are many reasons, but one of the reasons I think is grief. Uh, grief at being betrayed in a way by uh, uh, you know, people who should know better, who should be making better decisions, but grief to uh, that, that she will not, she and her generation will probably not uh, experience a, the, the world that she grew up thinking she was going to inherit. And um, so, I'll read, I have two little passages. Yes, so, please. Yeah. Read the grief one, yeah. Okay. Life as I had known it was gone that instant. 
the world would never be the same again. I was devastated. The pain of my loss was all that was left of him. It tore me apart, but I had no wish to dull the agony with painkillers. It was confirmation that he had lived, that he had been my husband. I did not want that to be gone as well. I was in free fall. I, who had always been in command and in control, I, who liked to have a firm grip on things. My lodestar was gone. I found myself in unknown territory, a reluctant wanderer in a strange land. Visibility was poor, and I had neither map nor compass. Which way was up? Which way was down? From which corner should I start walking? Where should I set my foot? There was nothing but blackness. And then I have a, another little passage too, if you have time for that. Is it about the change? No. Okay. Yeah. No. Um, I find the everyday euphemisms for death exasperating. Are they meant to smooth over the situation? Why can't people just call a spade a spade? I'm hypersensitive. Almost everything gets on my nerves, both what is said and what is left unsaid. Some people are too nosy and pushy, while others remain strangely distant. People who are afraid of saying something wrong, of rubbing salt in the wound that have the least, they have the least to offer. There is no solace to be had from people who act as if nothing has happened, who avoid the subject or are simply conspicuous by their absence. Are they doing it for my sake or for their own? It's even worse when they think of themselves as good friends. I haven't the strength to make allowances. I act and react with no thought for whether I'm creating a bad atmosphere or upsetting others. I'm not in full control of what I say or do and don't know who, when, or how I'm offending. I've grown short-sighted and can see nothing but my own grief. Thank you. Um, so m the, the other thing about uh, uh, Greta Thunberg is, you know, besides, I actually think it's uh, quite performative, her, her, her anger was actually to, to get attention to, uh, to her ideas, and her ideas actually are quite, uh, quite sound. Uh, the first one, you know, she does have two main, uh, two main, two main thoughts. Uh, one is uh, there must be an end to uh, fossil fuel reliance. Uh, that's the first one, and the second one is that there are natural, there are other natural solutions that we don't seem to have the political or cultural will to go through. For example, you know, reforestation, you know, to, to deal with deforestation. So there is a, and she, uh, she's often talking about the fact that we should be listening to scientists. So her, her message behind her delivery is actually quite straightforward. Um, Daryl, do you, do you want to comment on that? Sure. Um, the reliance, the issue of fossil fuels sort of uh, uh, touches me 
profoundly because that has impacted my territory so much. So where I'm from, and you know, I, I have been in mourning for a lot of my life for my territory because I live in exile from my territory for a number of reasons. One of the reasons is that uh, my family was forcefully relocated uh, because of the discovery of oil and gas in northern Alberta, just south of the Athabasca tar sands. And, and then there's that. We have the Athabasca tar sands in the heart of my homeland, which is extremely controversial. And, um, and there's a real entrenchment in the thinking the, of, the, of people involved in industry, as well as some politicians, that, um, you know, that this should be allowed to continue. And uh, unfortunately, there's no plan for remediation. The technology has been around for decades now for us to switch away, to move away from the, the use of fossil fuels to solutions that are much more environmentally friendly. But there's incredible resistance um, by the industry, for one, and by people who are involved in different aspects of the industry. And poor Greta. Um, went to Edmonton, which is the city closest to the Athabasca tar sands. She had a wonderful reception in Edmonton, which is a surprise to me. I think there were something like 10,000 people went out to see her and hear her, which was great. And it was a very positive reception. And the community actually painted a mural, a public mural, to honor her. And a day later, uh, somebody working in the oil industry came and painted graffiti over it, saying, this is oil country. Go away or something more profane than that. And, uh, you know, so there's, we, we live with that entrenched attitude by people who are involved in the industry. People who aren't, who aren't even necessarily getting a lot of profit. They may have a, a job that's paying them, you know, an average income, but they're so indoctrinated to think that climate change is false. They have their heads buried in the sand. But there has been some positive movement in this regard. I, I think it was a Norwegian bank that, uh, actually announced just last week that they were going to cancel their, their lower the credit rating of the province of Alberta because of its lack of action on climate change. And uh, there have been corporate leaders and other banking leaders, and even a former prime minister uh, of, of Canada that have come out and said that if we don't, people, corporations who don't pay attention to climate change are going to fail and pay, pay a huge price. Um, and th there are examples, I mean, there are other countries who have m moved away from fossil fuel consumption and are doing things more ecologically. I mentioned forestry earlier. There, there are sustainable forestry practices, for example, in Scandinavian countries. And we know about these things. But unfortunately, in general, we're not responding yet. But it, it's good to see that politicians and uh, at some levels and some corporate players are recognizing that it's time to move on and to do other things. And I mentioned the province of Alberta, and um, there's been a move, uh, for example, to solar energy in Alberta, which makes a lot of sense. And there's a lot of investment in solar energy. And there are even advocates of, who are trying to convince the rank and file of people who are involved in the industry that there will be work for them that is probably equally as lucrative in fields that are more environmentally friendly. Yeah, and also um, I think the, you know, some, uh, another step in this direction is also uh, understanding more of the problem. Uh, for example, there is a little bit more nuance, I think, than just fossil fuel being the biggest problem. In fact, there is a, 
there is a, uh, a website called drawdown.org, which actually has a lot of, uh, it's based on uh, uh, a coalition of scientists uh, coming up with uh, a ranking of what actually are the solutions for, <clears throat> for climate change. Uh, proven, already proven, already in action, all we have to do is do more of it. And actually the number one, uh, the number one solution is refrigerant management. So here we are sitting in an air-conditioned room. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, you know, so I think part of it is we, we may need to spend a little more time, attention, and uh, to this, a, a better understanding of what are the problems and what are the solutions. Um, let's move on to this idea uh, actually that you, you, you brought up, uh, someone trying to actually shut her voice down uh, because they, they have a, a different agenda. Uh, but I'm actually quite interested in the idea of such a young voice speaking. Um, uh, I'm, you know, in a similar way, what's going on in Hong Kong, uh, very young people speaking up. I think they're because they've become they are stakeholders, you know, they're in, uh, in their own future. Um, can, let's, shall we spend a little time uh, talking about, what do you think about that, Julie? Uh, well, just recently in Sydney, there was a, um, a small gathering of indigenous people, Aboriginal people who'd come down from the Northern Territory to confront a particular consortium called Origin Energy. And or Origin Energy does a lot of fracking in Australia to get gas from down beneath the oil shale. And um, this small group of Aboriginal people were traditional Aboriginal people from uh, below Arnhem Land, just uh, uh, south of Arnhem Land, in a community called Minyiri and Nyuka. And it just so happened that the Minyiri community was a community where I was a young teacher uh, many, many years ago. So I know the community really well. And uh, I saw a map which totally shocked me because the Northern Territory government and the Northern Territory in Australia is still under the federal government. I think there's similar things in Canada. It's not a state in its own right. It's actually governed by the federal government. And that the, a map had been drawn by the Northern Territory government which had lines around, and I saw the map, around various vulnerable Aboriginal communities which had land rights, who owned the land, the lines were drawn around as the exact area where Origin Energy would be able to do their fracking. And I, I, it's almost like I couldn't believe what I was looking at, that these particular communities, and I'm talking about a community that's only got 300 people. They've got one little school, some very simple houses. The water they drink comes straight from the Billabong, which floods every year. It's a very simple economy, which is based on, on raising of cattle, and it's a, a struggling community, but they still do all their ceremonies. They're very traditional. There is no alcohol. There is no drugs. They're a very, very special community. And here has got this line around it, and the origin company just comes in with its big trucks with no permission, and in fact, it's kind of a double speak. If you look on the internet, what does Origin Energy say about the permissions it has to do the fracking in these communities? And it's like listening to Donald Trump speak. They're saying, we have the permission, the full permission of the traditional owners. And there in Sydney were these traditional owners standing with their little placards, a small group of 20 people outside the Origin Energy office when they were having this, the stakeholders meeting begging that they could have a voice, and they did have a voice on the floor. And when the vote was taken by the shareholders, 
95% of the Origin shareholders voted to continue fracking and not to use renewable energy. So it's an incredibly hard road. Um, let me ask you, Woon, uh, you know, the, the sort of informational environment, you know, so it goes back to this idea of voices, like what, what, what are we hearing that influences us? Can you give us a perspective living in a Nordic country uh, where the perception is that you are more evolved, you know a lot better. Uh, is that, and you know, it's interesting because you're a Malaysian, so, and you, you can probably be a little, be more objective about that. Well, Norway is a very rich country. Norway's riches is based on oil. Um, but this rich, riches has also been used, you know, in many good ways. And so it's, it's yes and no, because if you look at uh, electric cars uh, and the way they are being uh, spread in Norway, it's incredible. I think Norway today, I don't have the statistics, but I think it's the largest, uh, highest per capita uh, when it comes to electric car ownership. And the reason for that is because, you know, so you, you can change behavior. You can change behavior by making it worthwhile, you know, for people. So basically, Norway, everything is very expensive. Those of you who have been there, you know. Um, however, there's one thing. Uh, if you buy an electric car, you don't have to pay taxes. If you buy an electric car, you can drive on the, the collective feel, you know, where the buses uh, uh, drive on. So you get a faster ride to work. Uh, if you have an electric car, you don't have to pay parking, uh, and so on. So, I mean, so first it started with a lot of people uh, getting an electric car as their second car. And then, of course, the batteries got better, but okay, car batteries are also problematic. But anyway, the car batteries got better, and you could, you know, drive even further with those cars. And so now a lot of people would have an electric car as their the main car. You know, and also because these cars are getting bigger. In the beginning, they were really tiny, you know, just for two people. But, you know, now you have big electric cars, you know. So, and all the, you know, the fancy car names, you know, BMW, Porsche, has not, they have electric cars now. And so, yeah. So you, you, can, you can make things happen by, 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 by nudging, you know, and by making it worthwhile economically especially, you know, for people. And then they have a good conscience, so, yeah. Do you notice the difference when you come back here? Uh, what is I notice is... Is it pronounced? You really uh, yeah, what I notice, of course, it's very hot here, but I notice that people don't walk at all, you know? You just, you know, you're two blocks and you want to be driven and you want the car to stop right in front and you want to park right in front. I mean, in no way we just walk, yeah. Hello? So we, we, we talked about the, the idea of uh, young voices, uh, like, like Greta speaking up, but um, yes, we came off a panel yesterday about uh, indigenous writers, and I think uh, they also represent an important voice because they're usually frontline. It affects, for, for example, in Malaysia, they are the first to be affected by a lot of these things through urbanization. They've been uh, urbanization and deforestation, they, they see firsthand their lives affected by this. So Daryl, can you uh, uh, 
expand on that a little bit more? Sure. Uh, so I'm, I'm just going to talk a little bit about uh, young people, young Indigenous people, and the experience I've seen in Canada that, that has led to um, some interesting solutions. So in my experience, quite often, um, certainly based on past experience, today's activists are tomorrow's leaders. And uh, I think that'll be the case with the young people, including the young Indigenous people that we're seeing now. So I'm thinking in particular about uh, a sensitive ecological area that was called Clayquot Sound on Vancouver Island. And it was anybody from Canada and maybe from the United States will be aware of uh, this area. It's a, it was an area of old growth forest that was particularly treasured by the local First Nations communities, the New Chanoth people. And when forestry, log, the provincial government issued logging permits and uh, cutting permits, and the community stood up to government, and this was in the 70s. And so there were a cadre of young people, environmentalists and indigenous youth, who staged really dramatic protests. They weren't violent, but they were adamant. And they got arrested, they spent time in jail, and something parallel happened in a, uh, a northern community called Haida Gwaii, it's an archipelago. And uh, similarly, the indigenous people there were protesting logging, uh, clear-cut logging, particularly of old-growth forests on their lands. So what happened in the case of the Clayquot Sound is many of those young people who were protesting and arrested in the 70s became political leaders, leaders of their communities like 20 years later, and even political leaders in mainstream uh, society. And what was interesting there was we ended up having a, a really interesting uh, solution that came about after lots of discussion. The, the, the tribes there, the New Town people, would simply not back down. And um, so they ended up not logging the old growth forests that they wanted to protect. And instead, the provincial government of British Columbia of the day ended up setting, setting up what they called a scientific panel. And it was one of the most interesting solutions I've ever seen. It was incredibly progressive. So they had uh, PhD-level scientists from the University of British Columbia and a couple of other universities, uh, hardcore scientists um, who had been renowned for their work on the environment and, and research. And then they brought traditional knowledge holders, so elders from the local communities together. And what happened over a few years, they, they actually did a report. That, that it took a long time. It took about five years. But they developed a really interesting rapport between the traditional knowledge holders and the scientists. And they came to respect each other in an incredible way so that what happened was the scientists were able to validate the traditional knowledge uh, of the elders. And with that, they were able to come up with common ground to come up with a, a progressive approach to development in the area. The chiefs in that region are very progressive thinkers, and they're also businessmen. And they, they weren't against development, but they wanted sustainable development. And they wanted to protect their environment, the lands they were living in, and the quality of the lands and the quality of life for, for their future uh, descendants. And so that scientific panel went on for years. And they ended up setting up a co-management approach to the lands there. And uh, it, it was one of the most beautiful things that I've ever seen. And at the end of the scientific panel, when the report was presented, you had these elders uh, thanking the scientists and acknowledging the scientists for their hard work and commitment. 
and vice versa, you had the scientists validating and acknowledging the elders for their incredibly rich traditional knowledge. So that was perhaps one of the best uh, scenarios I've seen happen. Similar in Haida Gwaii, uh, it hasn't been as good a conclusion, but there's been more sustainable forestry practices as a result of the activism. And I, I'm really encouraged by the young people. Yeah, I'm sounding like an old man. Uh, it was just yesterday, I considered myself one of those young people. I still do, I'm still young at heart. But um, by what we call the millennials, um, because priorities seem to be different. Quality of life seems to be front and foremost. And of course, in quality of life, means that you're taking care of your surroundings and your environment. Uh, you want to be breathing clean air, you want to be drinking good, fresh, pristine water, and you want good, nutritious food. And um, it isn't, um, the accumulation of wealth isn't the priority for what I see as today's younger generation. Quality of life is first and foremost, and, and that's just wonderful to see. And the young people seem to be willing to make the sacrifices that they need to make. And that's been the biggest problem in, in Canada in particular, is that you know we're willing to make thunderous noise and be angry as hell about the environment and what's going on. But if somebody asks us to give up the car and uh, take the bus or uh, uh, do ride sharing and that sort of thing, yeah, water bottles. Well, luckily there is a ban on water bottles in many parts of many cities in Canada now. Um, so when we're asked to make some sacrifice, personal sacrifice, we're okay and adamant that climate change you know, needs to be addressed until it hits us in, in our own personal circumstances. But I'm seeing young people who are cycling instead of they're buying really good bicycles and cycling instead of driving their cars everywhere and they're refusing to use plastic bottles, they're refusing to use plastic bags, and uh, that sort of thing. So it's, I'm, I'm hopeful for the future in that regard. Okay, um, since we're at a literary festival, um, I'm interested to hear what the panel uh, uh, might recommend as books on the subject that maybe were influential in uh, changing your thinking. I'll start with I read uh, The Omnivore's Dilemma by Michael Pollan uh, quite a few years ago, and it fundamentally changed my understanding of how food affects us environmentally, the choices we make. Um, you know, it's, it's, it has a devastating uh, effect how we grow it, um, what lands we, re we renovate to, to turn into agricultural land, and then what happens after uh, depending on how we package it or sell it or waste it. So this idea of food as a very central idea in environmental change, I think, is quite powerful. Um, Julie, do you, do you have something that you... Yes, look, there are a couple of books that, uh, if you like, you know, the books that changed my life. Uh, Annie Proulx's book, uh, The Bark, Bark Skins, I don't know if any of you have read it. It's really thick. It's about that thick. So you read it and then you turn around and you read it again in case you miss something. So it keeps you quiet for a few weeks, really. But it's about the history of trees in both uh, Canada, the United States, and also, strangely enough, New Zealand. And she does this historical tracing of what happened to trees because of colonialism and uh, invasion of indigenous lands. On, and uh, uh, mostly to, it's a history of colonialism and the raping of forests and the taking of forests to build ships 
further colonised the rest of the world. And it's the most extraordinary book, and it follows a number of families over time, starting, I think, in about the 1400s. So it really is an absolute masterpiece about how um, politics converges with uh, nature in order to, uh, to destroy natural lands, but also to grow communities. So it's like without, you can't build a city without cutting trees. So, but it's an amazing book. And another amazing book is uh, Richard Powell's uh, um, The Overstory, which uh, was a runner-up for the Man Booker Prize. Instead, the Man Booker Prize last year was won by um, The Milkman, which was uh, set in Belfast. But the, overs the, um, the Overstory is also about trees and uh, human beings' uh, connection to trees. So they're two important books. And in Australia, we've got Alexis Wright, a very prominent Aboriginal writer um, who's written a number of books. Uh, one, one of the books is called The Swan Book, which is a dystopian future of what life could be like for human beings in Australia once uh, uh, the, the natural world is gone and in, in 20 years' time it's all oil and gas and nothing else. And uh, she writes about an imaginary people called The Swan People. So they're two books that I would recommend. What, what's, um, what are books that have uh, affected you? Well, I mean, when you mentioned this, one book came into mind, and it's just, it's a classic. I mean, if you're interested in climate change, of course, you have to read The Silent Spring, uh, Rachel Carson, right? I mean, this is like, this was written long before this was a fashionable, uh, you know, mainstream type of uh, topic, you know, where the, when, when nobody was talking about this, but definitely that was a book that uh, is a very powerful book and a book which changed, I think, a lot of people's uh, view on, on this, this topic. Yeah, so that's my contribution. Daryl? Sure. One book is by um, an award-winning Indigenous author in Canada. It's a dystopian novel, and it's um, called The Bone Marrow Thieves by Cherie Dimaline, and um, it's intended for a young adult audience, but it's actually appropriate for everyone. It's just wonderful, uh, and it's sort of a projection of if we keep living life the way it is, uh, where we'll end up, and it's from an indigenous perspective. And the other book is, a, a, is an absolutely magical book that's like a long meditation, a long, beautiful meditation about the human interface with nature uh, from one woman's perspective. And uh, the woman is a botanist, a, a, a scientist, and her name is Robin Wall Kimmerer, and the book is uh, Braiding Sweetgrass. And uh, so she talks about her relationship, in her work as a botanist in her research, her relationships with, her relationship with the plant world and how magical it is. And uh, it's, it's just a wonderful book about uh, ecology. Okay, so I think um, I want to cover a little extra time for the important subject of optimism, because I think we, pessimism uh, gets us to an understanding of a problem, uh, starting to think about the solutions, but I think some of us, uh, many of us need to start investing in the idea of optimism. You know, you can clean the beaches and pick up the plastic bottles, but if someone isn't working to find a replacement for that, we're not going to get anywhere. Um, Personally, I, th I think there is grounds for optimism. There is um, a lot going on in the world. Uh, what I'm particularly interested in is, you know, again, in, in the, 
area of food, which is uh, the technological and uh, business advancement in the idea of plant protein. You know, we're seeing the Impossible Burger, uh, Rippled Milk. Uh, there's all kinds of new ideas that may create substantial change in how we eat and therefore um, uh, affect, uh, affect the outcomes of uh, what we're dealing with. Um, but um, I think to, to, to get into that idea a little bit more, um, I think we need to understand how change happens. Uh, you know, how does it happen in, in, in us humans? Uh, and I, I, there's a couple of interesting uh, views I think uh, I'd like to uh, get into. One of them is, um, Woon, you, you had a, a, a passage that talks about change as a, a, a transition, a moment that mm. happens, and, uh, and that's when you move forward. Mm. Do you, you want to share that uh, sure. passage with us? So in a way, you're talking about a tipping point, or you know, what is it that moves you from one stage to the other? And of course, we can have a lot of knowledge, uh, but I think in a way, uh, to move forward, we have to be touched in some way, right, uh, in our hearts. So this is just my little take on this. Since I became bitten by the mushroom bug, I have discovered an invisible peril world right at my feet, one with its own unruly logic and wayward vitality, a magical world which I would once have walked straight past. Sometimes when I find mushrooms, time seems to stand still. I experience both flow and zen, the sense of gratification and of being at one with the universe bring both inner contentment and happiness. At such moments, only one thing matters, to be exactly where I am and to do exactly what I'm doing. At such moments, I don't think about what I'm going to have for dinner or what people think of my hairstyle. One thing is the sense of mastery that comes with more knowledge and more practice in exploring a forest, something else and quite unexpected is the feeling of euphoria in my heart. My heart leapt the first time I found a delicious edible mushroom on my own. Was this happiness? It was staggering to feel an emotion I thought had gone for good when Aof died. It was like being given an intravenous shot of multivitamins. What a sensation. Elation bubbled out of every cell in my body. All at once, a slender, golden beam of light pierced my soul. Find one mushroom, and there's a good chance that you will find another nearby. The thrill of discovery is cumulative. One mushroom, one delight. Two mushrooms, double delight. Thank you. Um, just to go a, a little bit more into that, uh, you were also going into forests. And, you know, we, we actually know now that this has impact. You know, we know this is scientifically 
helping us to get better. And actually, I, I, uh, I manage a, a couple of parks in, uh, in Johor, and we are trying to get people interested in the idea of uh, the forest as a source of uh, pleasure and a reduction of stress um, and actually about connecting children back to nature. So we do something called nature class, you know, um, and uh, we're, we're going to do, be doing something called forest school. And this is actually something Singapore is also moving into. They're looking at their green spaces and uh, forested environments as ways to get children, uh, connected uh, children and even uh, seniors, connected back to nature as part of a, a health policy. Uh, they, they, they think that um, uh, early onset de dementia can be uh, retarded by uh, seniors being uh, exposed to nature more often. And the same thing with kids. If they're exposed to more nature, they become more empathic and they in turn have different ideas about the environment. So did you, did you feel that if the forest was uh, restorative to you? Definitely. But the thing is, you know, I mean, Norwegians are known for going into the forest. I have lived in Norway for very many years. I was married to a Norwegian. He was not that interested in going to the forest. I was very happy that he was not that interested in going to the forest because, you know, I'm Malaysian, right? We, we don't walk in the forest. So it was only after he died that I started doing this. This, this thing that was around me and so available, which I didn't do. And the main thing, I think, is that it's just, first, you have not done it, so you fear it in some way. You are uncomfortable because you do not know. You have not done it often enough. And now, uh, this mushroom society that I'm part of, it is also a, a wild plant society. So after I sort of studied all the mushrooms, I thought, hey, maybe I should study the wild plants too. And, and also to extend my season because mushrooms, you know, they come in the autumn and the wild plants, they start blooming in spring. And the amazing thing was, I mean, this is Norway, it's a cold country. And in May, we had a, like a workshop and there were 70 people and we lived in a school one long weekend we went out picking, uh, foraging for wild food. And that one weekend, we fed 70 people all meals with food we had picked. And this is in Norway. I mean, this is just after the snow had melted. So there's so much food out there and good food too. You need to know about it. Uh, you need to work hard because we had 70 people. We divided ourselves in, you know, 10 groups of seven each. You, you know, this group go and pick this. So you learn this 10 things and, you know, so you learn as, as you went along. So you need, you need practice, you need knowledge, uh, you need some inspiration. But it's out there and Malaysians like to eat. So, you know, free food, you know, God, this, you know, you got a good project there. <laughs> Yeah, well, we're, we're really into this idea of experience as a substitute for consumerism, which is what you were doing, you know? You were spending time outside, looking for mushrooms, as opposed to shopping for something, and, you know? So I think that's an that's a, that's a optimistic direction to go into. Um, Julie, you have a poem I think that's quite interesting because it's another way we can, uh, we can reach uh, towards a, a 
position of change, which is some kind of intervention, some kind of natural intervention, right? So tell us the story about this bird. Which one did you mean? The, the blackbird that stops the uh, Oh, okay, all right. The, the mine. Um, yes, we had a conversation prior to this. I actually want to talk a little bit about fire stick farming, so I'll say that first. That. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my son um, is a young lawyer, but he, he, in his career, he became, he's very passionate about climate change, about mitigation of climate change. And he ended up working for the Australian government on the Green Climate Fund, which was a fund, an international fund put, uh, put together by many countries in the world in order to uh, give climate mitigation strategies to countries that were developing countries. And one of the extraordinary projects he was asked to be part of was to go to Arnhem Land to learn from traditional um, uh, indigenous people in Arnhem Land up in the north of Australia about what's called fire stick farming. And fire stick farming is a way of managing the forest and the landscape through doing patterned burning at certain times of the year. So that instead of getting a huge bushfire that comes through and kills all the animals and ruins all the trees, if it's managed in a, in a patterned way, it encourages the regrowth of grasses and fruits and plants and, and, and native uh, you know, nuts um, uh, through this fire stick farming. And then later on, he was asked to take this fire stick farming technology with the Aboriginal elders from both um, from the Kimberley region of West Australia and the Northern Territory to Botswana. So he had this really interesting experience of working, walking through the, uh, the, the forest grasslands in Botswana with traditional people from Botswana with these Aboriginal elders, teaching them how to do fire stick management of the landscape, all funded by the Green Climate Fund, of which the, you know, the developed nations in the world had contribute millions of dollars. And I thought this was an example of uh, traditional skills being used in this international way, and I think it's, uh, it's kind of a way of the future. And also, when I walk through the bush now, I can see so many things to eat. You know, there's lily pillies, a little purple sweet um, a berry, which you can pick off the trees, which are... Uh, full of vitamin C, there's, uh, there's G-bungs, which have kind of got a creamy, sweet fruit. Uh, there's leaves you can pick to eat, which is called, the, it's called a sarsaparilla. I don't know what the real Aboriginal name is. And it's a leaf that you chew, which is a medicine, and it, it, uh, it, it makes you not thirsty anymore, and it stops sore throats. But the question that I was actually asked by Chris was to talk about the intervention of, of nature. There's a very small bird in Australia which has just been voted by the uh, Guardian newspaper as the um, Australia's favourite bird. And it's a little bird called the black-throated finch. And the black-throated finch, there's only a thousand black-throated finches left on earth. A tiny little bird, mostly white, with a little black kind of collar around its neck. And this little bird is all that stands between uh, the Queensland uh, government allowing a huge, the, one of the biggest coal mines in the world to be developed in what's called the Galilee Basin in Queensland by an Indian company called Adani. And this has been a very uh, explosive issue in Australia about letting this great big mine go ahead because once it opens up that part of the Galilee Basin, then a whole lot of other companies, often Australian companies, want to come in and build mines that are even twice as big. And so this little tiny bird, which is an endangered species, there's only a thousand left, stands in the way of one of the biggest gold, uh, coal mines in the world opening up, which of course 
any intelligent Australian says coal is not the way to go. We've got so much sun and wind that we can do solar energy much better. But I'll read you the poem. Ode to the black-throated finch, Binyang. O little finch, the parson finch, you brave, fierce bird, Binyang. Only you can stop Adani mine, only you. Your head uplifted, black bill, black line of eye, sunglasses wrapped, tweet and ruffle, standing eye to eye with miners in high vis. Chicks, small, fluffy cotton balls, they cuddled up to brown, smooth wings at sunset, golden light trilling, trilling, you face off Indians and patriot ministers. You nest in grass and peck at seeds only found in Galilee. Adani says, the birds can just fly somewhere else. Look up domain. The southern finch, Papulia chinta chinta, white-rumped queen of birds, less than a thousand live, extinction, ugly words. A small, sleek, stocky bird, black shining cone beak, jet black tail twitching. Eyes of beads, binyang. No bribe can induce a finch to move elsewhere. A nice nesting box in Noosa. Plates of finest imported seeds. A glass of icy Chardonnay. Inhabits grassy woodlands. Eucalypts, paperbarks, acacias. Temperature rising, global warming. Dungmala springs, bubbling, birds sipping. Adani, friend to working man. Their shantgrum luxury estate is in India, where workers drown in cholera. Mine robots run, no miners, no driller beds. Twelve years to go and broken wings, CSIRO, nod your heads. O oh, black-throated finch, lady of the sky, tenderly we hold you to our chests, your beating tiny heart, binyang, binyang. Beautiful. Um, I, I just wanted to dig into a little bit about uh, your... your uh, talking about indigenous foods, and I think that's a uh, uh, local native things. I think there's a, a sort of reemergence of interest in that, and uh, at, at all levels, you know, at fine dining, we I, we we work with chefs who buy uh, things from us from our farm and our, our gardens, uh, which are more interesting. I think that's a direction. I think that's a very optimistic direction that we we sort of dig back into, you know, because I think we've been very uh, disconnected from nature. Is to go back to some of the things we knew, you know, heirloom foods, native indigenous plants, things that don't need a lot of, you know, they don't need pesticides and uh, inorganic things to grow. Daryl, is this, uh, this is something that is, um, I remember from yesterday's panel uh, uh, that you were talking about your youth uh, uh, putting these ideas into you. Um, do we need to re-educate ourselves about uh, what's available out in nature? Uh, or is it, still, is it still there? It's just um, being redirected back to it? Well, I think we do need to re-educate ourselves. Um, I see fewer people harvesting wild foods, um, berries and uh, plant foods, uh, just uh, because of a lack of awareness or a misunderstanding. Um, when I was a child, of course, we harvested every type of berry there was. And I write about that in my book, about uh, the, the beauty of, uh, of uh, an army of us uh, going out to the berry patches and, and picking berries that um, were good for us. And 
my cousins have recently, there's an epidemic of diabetes in indigenous communities in Canada, like there is in many parts of the world. And um, my cousins have recently learned from elders or were recalled, elders reminded them that there's a type of berry called the high bush cranberry that is very effective at controlling blood sugar levels and uh, reducing uh, incidence of di the incidence of, of diabetes. And so my, my family has started harvesting it again. Um, but to talk about the broader subject of Indigenous knowledge, I talk in my second book, Pia Ga, which will come out in September of 2020, I talk more about my career. And I've been fortunate in most of my career to work with Indigenous people in different parts of Canada and actually different parts of the world. Um, but my work with Indigenous people has given me great hope uh, because of what I've learned from them. So there's one Indigenous community I worked with in uh, the Northwest Territories of Canada, and they're the Delaney people, uh, very, they're Satu Dene people, and they're uh, really powerfully um, entrenched in their traditions and their culture and have wonderful knowledge. And as part of their traditional knowledge, they have prophets and seers. And part of the, what their prophets and seers are saying is that um, they have to be stewards of the lake that they live upon and around. It's called Great Bear Lake, uh, the Satu. Actually, in their language, it's called the Satu. And the reason that they have to do that is because it's the 12th largest freshwater lake in the world. And they believe that the humanity is going to come to rely on their source of water someday and that they have to be good stewards uh, so that the lake is available for future generations as a source of fresh water. And then uh, something fascinating uh, happened when I was at the Bangkok Literary Festival just last week. I was fortunate enough to, uh, one of the moderators brought uh, along, she, she had studied my book very carefully and was really moved by my story and um, the changes that I talked about in, in my community, the Nehiawar Creek community, and how the, all the changes impacted my life and my family's life. And she brought a seer, an indigenous woman, who's a seer, who's well known uh, as a powerful seer. And that's my terminology is seer. They call her, of course, something else. Um, but I had a private session with her where I could ask her two questions. And the first question I asked her is, was if my people, the Cree people, Nehiao people, would be okay into the future? And without batting an eye or hesitating, she said, yes, your people are going to be fine because traditional knowledge is going to come to the fore again and there'll be an increased value placed on indigenous knowledge and awareness and the indigenous culture and lifestyle. So I was really deeply assured by that. And that really parallels what a lot of indigenous elders in Canada are saying, that um, it's, it's the way of the future um, to go back to a more traditional lifestyle. And we're coming a full circle in so many ways in Canada. Um, for example, there, I just read an article yesterday about the bison and buffalo that used to be so numerous on the plains that uh, some of the Elder, elders and chiefs used to say the, the plains were black with them. There were so many. And there was just a, a study of the return of bison in the United States in some parts, like in Texas. And uh, scientists were 
monitoring the impact and the relationship that the bison had with the land as opposed to the modern farming techniques of raising cattle. And what they found was that the bison had this innate knowledge of how to graze so that their relationship with the land was so powerful that the plants actually got stronger with their presence. Um, and so they were able to graze a certain, graze plants just long enough so that um, the plants were renewed. And over like a period of five years, the area that they were they had inhabited was what was much richer. The plant life was more was richer and uh, more diverse and healthier, as were the bison. So in Canada, we're we've come a full circle. The bison and I write about this in my second book because it's one of my pet peeves. Um, something that's near and dear to my heart is the, the demise of the buffalo. The buffalo were deliberately ex uh, made extinct in North America to starve indigenous people into submission. And ironically, we're now coming a full circle to realize that buffalo meat and bison meat is a far healthier meat and realize that these animals are far better for the habitat and the environment because it was their natural habitat and environment. And uh, so I'm really in, it's the one, uh, Thing that really gives me optimism and uh, a leading Canadian scientist and uh, um, environmentalist David Suzuki actually a couple of years ago um, made this dramatic statement he wrote an article saying that environmentalists aren't going to save the environment it's going to be indigenous people through indigenous knowledge that's interesting um, and you know there it could also connect with something more modern for example uh, this, all these new plant proteins coming out of the Silicon, uh, Silicon Valley. The ingredients actually, ingredients that us Asians have been eating for forever. You know, there's a new substitute milk called Ripple Milk, and it's made from a chana dal, which we traditionally have here for breakfast. So I think, you know, I think there's a connection between traditional knowledge and a new way of evolving that knowledge. So I'd like to... Um, I think open it out now to any questions that anybody might have for the panel, if there's something uh, that you might want to um, uh, dig into a little bit more. <laughs> any books you want to recommend from the previous list? Or is there something that you've you, um, connected with? Or are you angry? Is there some, or do you want to share some anger? Oh God, give us a little. Okay, well, um, I think we can, we can wrap up. Do you, are you guys interested in pursuing uh, any, uh, any lines of thought here? Yeah. Well, just related to what you were saying, and actually related to some of the work that you're doing, another thing that, um, um, activity I see that really encourages me in Canada is a move to organic farming and a type of farm-to-table kind of diet, and also uh, uh, something we call the local diet, a 500-mile diet. And, you know, these movements are really uh, becoming ex powerful and um, spreading throughout the country, and I'm, I'm quite encouraged that people are valuing um, the, the kind of dynamic that, that's created by eating local, by growing your own food, by buying local and by supporting local and organic farmers. And um, 
you know, we talked about a forest earlier, and uh, it's interesting the way my life as well has come a, a full circle. I live in a forest, and I didn't really know what I was doing or why I moved there until after I'd written my, my first book. And I understood that I was trying to recreate that idyllic environment that I had growing up as a child, where we could go, and I, I did actually want to talk about this, and in my first book, I described this idyllic scenario where um, my extended family lived off the land uh, in our family grouping, and uh, we didn't have electricity or running water or a sewer system, uh, and we moved seasonally to follow the animals. And I remember one of my most cherished memories was, and I used to dream about this for years as a young adult, um, of taking a bucket and going down to the stream to get drinking water. And we do that a couple of times a day. And then when you get back home, just being able to scoop water out of that bucket and drink it, fresh water from the, the creek. And that changed when I was about 10 years old. We started getting warnings not to do that anymore because the water was contaminated. Um, but a return to that sort of pristine environment and to a place where um, we can live more closely in harmony with nature and where nature will provide for us again. And um, I, I kind of, I, I spend a lot of time actually talking about that transition in, in my first book and a bit less in my second book. But in my second book, I realized that we've come a full circle and I use some magic realism to take us back to the, back to the past, sort of the future becomes the past. And I just want to finish up by saying I really hope that more writers and um, write more about environmental issues because I find in Australia that it's even quite hard to get a, a book published which has got an env environmental issues on it if it's uh, non-fiction. But, um, but I think it's really important that we, we talk about these issues in a, you know, and not just bury our heads in the sand and just write novels about having a holiday in the south of France. I mean, that's all very nice, but I just think sometimes you've really got to embrace what's really happening around you. And one of the exciting things that's happening in my own life is that we know a lot of people in the country who are engaged in the, the notion of building mini forests, and they raise money to uh, grow small forests on very small blocks of land, uh, these intense forests. And the more trees we all plant, we have a better chance of surviving the planet. So go home and plant a tree. Thank you. I think another big deal is this idea of cheap, like uh, that we have this entitlement that we, uh, we should be able to buy things very cheaply. And, and I think that's made fundamental changes in, in a lot of things. For example, like food, I, um, I came back to Malaysia uh, about nine years ago after a, a long gap, and I realized that a lot of foods here don't taste the same. And one of the reasons is they've substituted a lot of things, like what they would make something with ghee, would now be vegetable oil, which is really palm oil, you know. So, uh, and in a way, um, cheap food has taken away the breaks, to a, a natural break for consumption, you know, like these things used to be expensive, so you didn't used to eat a lot of it. But now, um, if you go into the supermarkets during the festivals, you know, the cookies are piled from the floor to the ceiling, you know, so that's like, three or four times a year, suddenly something that was very special, you know, uh, you only have it once a year, it's a, it's a real treat, it's something that you eat a lot of now during those festivals and it's available through the year. So I think, that, I think that's, a, I think we need a reevaluation of sort of what 
food kind of costs, you know. Um, do you, do you, what are your thoughts on the, the food back here? Do you, do you sense it, the, the change in that? Also the taste, the taste have changed. People want to eat more Western food here now. Okay. Um, okay, going back to the forest and going back to that little workshop I went to with 70 people where we ate from the, from the forest, one thing I learned was that a lot of the wild plants that we picked, which were edible, are bitter. And, and that was very interesting because for me, I understood then that in a way, our diet and what is available in the shops, in the markets, I mean, bitter is not like fun to eat, but it's actually good for you too. And, and we have sort of like removed that from our diet. And that the only bitter thing I can buy is almost like rucola or something like that, a salad, you know. But in nature, a lot of the foods that are edible are bitter and some very, very bitter. So, so we, we, have, we have changed, you know, in, in terms of taste, definitely, and what we think is good or bad. And yeah, cheap food, cheap clothes, I mean, all this stuff is bad for you. <laughs> okay, and on that note, we're going to wrap up. I'd like to thank my esteemed panel, Woon, Julie, Daryl. And thank uh, you to Chris. For a great Sorry. session. Thank you to Chris. There's a bus that's going to leave here for notebooks at 2.10. Notebooks? At 2.10 for those who are interested in joining that. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. And applause for the panel. Thank you.